Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, comes to him with a few other friends from Judah. Let's read in verse 3. They said to me, that's me is Nehemiah, he's writing in the first person, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem's broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Now remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. And that's what happened. That's why they're in exile. They're unfaithful to God. Verse 9, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as the dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And that's the end of chapter one. So Nehemiah, right at the end of that chapter, he says, I was the cupbearer. So he had a secular job. He was a regular working guy and he was a cupbearer to the king of Babylon, King Artaxerxes, which is very hard to pronounce late at night when you're practicing your sermon. <laughs> so what he had to do as the cupbearer, he had to taste the food and the wine and anything else he drank right, to make sure there was no poison in the food. Because the king, you know, they changed kings often because, you know, they'd kill each other. But if they could find a way to poison the king without, like, launching an attack, that was better. And so the cupbearer was there to protect the king by checking out the food. And he would go to the kitchens and watch over the shoulders of the chef and smell the food. And like he would be involved to make sure the king didn't die through poisoning. So he had a very important job. He probably ate all day long. But importantly, the king must have trusted him immensely. In fact, he trusted him with his life. Nehemiah was not a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He was just a regular guy with a secular job in a foreign country serving an ungodly king, the king who held tens of thousands of his countrymen in exile. This king wasn't the one who destroyed Jerusalem, but he's the one who's still holding them all in exile. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for Nehemiah? Put yourselves in his shoes for a moment. Very tough spot to be in. I'm sure the things that he witnessed on a day-to-day -day basis, the things he saw, the things he heard, the things that happened, in this ungodly nation would have gone against his beliefs and his cultures. He would have been conflicted, should I be participating, but he's, he's working for the king. Do you see how his heart must have been in turmoil with what he's going through? As a cupbearer, he would have had to taste all the food. Now, what if this king liked bacon? 
As a Jewish man, that's going to be really difficult because you're going to be sinning to do your job. A small little example there. But imagine the anger inside. Maybe even thought, well, I'm the cupbearer. Maybe God's allowed me to be here so I can poison the king. And then we can all go back to Jerusalem. That's the reason God's got me here. But he didn't, he didn't think that. It seems like he dealt with all his heart issues and he served this foreign king, this ungodly king, as best as he could. So much so the king trusted him with his life. That's amazing. What an employee. I'm sure we'd all like to have those in our organization. We, we friends, we mustn't despise a secular job. Some people think, oh, when I'm in the ministry, oh, that's when I've, I've reached the top of the pillar. But actually, if we have an ungodly boss, if we're in a terrible organization, but if God's put us there, it's where he wants us to be. We mustn't despise that. God puts us in places, firstly, to deal with our own hearts and our own issues. Someone once said, your job is not there to make you happy, it's to make you holy. Because only your boss can probably chisel off some uh, sharp corners that you still have and that I still have. But God also puts us there that the kingdom can advance to other people in that place. And we're going to see that as we go through this book of Nehemiah. Chapter 2, God gives Nehemiah incredible favor with the king. He gets to go back to Jerusalem and he, he looks around the city and sees the devastation and the wall broken down. And he gathers hundreds of people and they start rebuilding the wall. And together with Ezra, the priest, they address the moral backsliding of the nation. There's a spiritual renewal that takes place. The nation turns back to God. All because a secular guy with a secular job, a regular guy with a secular job and an ungodly boss followed Jesus, followed God. Incredible change to thousands of people. Friends, what can God do through you and I? if we would follow him and obey him. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to look at different aspects of Nehemiah's character that helped him bring about this massive change in the nation of, of Israel and in Jerusalem in particular. And the first thing, the topic for today, is that Nehemiah was a man of great prayer. He was a man of great prayer. And it's the prayer that we read formed mo most of the text this morning. But what makes Nehemiah such a great prayer? That's what we're going to look at this morning. The first thing is that notice how his heart was moved. It says here, for, for, for the plight of others, he hears about Jerusalem and its people, and he weeps, and he mourns, and he fasts, and he prays. God has moved his heart for people who are far away, his own countrymen. For some days he calls out to God. Friends, when was the last time God moved your heart? for someone else, for another nation, for another country, for another people group. Having a soft heart and being sensitive to what God is doing is an important part of our prayer life. The Apostle Paul also had a heart that was moved for other people. Listen to what he writes to the church in Thessal Thessalonica. He says, brothers and sisters, we were separated from you for a short time in person, but not in thought, but out of our intense longing, can you feel the emotion? Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Some of our family members won't even do that for me. But here's Paul thinking of a church. We have this intense longing to be with you. We made every effort 
to try and get to see you. We wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Friends, his heart was moved for other people. So I want to ask us this morning, allow God to stir your heart, to move your heart. Jesus, you read the Gospels over and over. It says his heart was moved with compassion. He had compassion on this person and he went to them and prayed for them and ministered to them. Jesus ministered out of a heart that was moved by God. The second thing we see in Nehemiah is that he brings his request first to God. He doesn't go to a friend or try and find a solution or try and figure out a way around. He doesn't get glum and depressed and just like sit at home for three weeks. I'm stunned by this. This is an amazing example. And obviously they didn't have Google and WhatsApp. And as soon as his brother left, he got on WhatsApp. Oh, did you hear what happened to Jerusalem? Like there was none of that happening. He didn't post something on Facebook. Obviously they didn't have it, <laughs> right? But he went first to God. And this is challenging for me because if I think about my response and processing of information, it doesn't look like Nehemiah's. Let me tell you what it looks like for me. I'm an introvert, so when I hear big news or sad news, I want to think about it inside. I want to process it internally. And then I'll chat to Candace. I'll discuss with some close friends. I'll talk to my dad or something for advice. If I can't figure it out, I'll go to Google. How do I change my car tire? Because like, um, DIY and me are like not friends. Try and figure out something on Google. And then at the end of all that, when I still haven't solved the problem, when I'm still in turmoil, then I go and pray. At the end, my last resort is God. It's not good, hey? Anyone else? Sound familiar to anyone else? Yeah. But Nehemiah, he went to God first. Friends, I think you and I, myself included, we need to change how we process life. Go to God first. Thirdly, notice how he wasn't praying for himself. Except when he was confessing his own sins to God, his prayers were outward. Okay? Now, it's not wrong to pray for yourself. We should be praying for ourselves every day. Jesus taught us, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us today, give me today my daily bread. So it's not wrong to pray for ourselves, and we should pray for ourselves. But Nehemiah realizes there's something much bigger than himself at play in that moment, and his prayers are outward. Praying for ourselves shouldn't be the only type of prayer that we have. We should be praying for others, not just for ourselves. Number four, Nehemiah seems like he prays a lot. Not just when he's in trouble. You don't see it now, but in chapter 2, he comes before the king, and he, he has a discussion with the king, and the king asks him a question while he's in conversation with the king, and it says this, I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered the king. It seems like throughout the day, Nehemiah's praying. He's in conversation with God. It's not like at set times or set moments, like it seems like Nehemiah and God are connected. It's not a priest, he's just a regular guy. He's praying throughout the day. There's this ongoing prayer that's kind of regular, and it's such a good example for us. How can we grow our prayer life? Well, pray whenever you have a moment. 
Talk to God quietly in your mind. Let your heart be moved. Set your heart on things above. The apostle encourages us. What number are we on? Four. Number five. He prays specifically. Okay? At the end of his prayer in chapter one, he says, Lord, grant your servant success and favor with this man. He knows he's going to talk to the king at some point. So he says, Lord, when I go and talk to the king, give me favor. Let me be successful. It's a good thing to pray, Lord, grant me success. There's a number of times in the New Testament where even Jesus says, whatever you pray for in my name, I will do for you. And then a lot of us get upset because, Lord, I prayed lots and nothing happened. This scripture, uh-uh. You go and read the context of those scriptures. They'll give us a clue. John chapter 15, when Jesus says, whatever you pray in my name. John 15 is about the vine and the branches. It's about us as disciples bearing fruit for Jesus, eternal fruit. So in the context of you and me bearing fruit for Jesus, he says, ask whatever you want. Selfish prayers, I don't know how much God answers so much. But when we're praying in line with him and with what heaven wants, we can pray, Lord, grant us success with what you've called us to. Some people I know, they love to play, pray generic prayers. Lord, thank you for today. Please bless me. Please keep me safe. Traveling mercies, amen. We've all prayed those prayers. Let's be honest. We've all prayed those prayers, and those aren't bad. But they're just like if you're a parent. Can you imagine your kid coming to you in the morning? Thanks, Dad. Can you make sure the lunch is ready and the car's warm when you go to school? See you later. There's no relationship in there. Jesus knows what we're going to ask before we even ask it. Yet, because there's relationship, we're his children. He delights when we say X, Y, Z, specific prayers. Number six. Nehemiah is honest and he owns up to his mistakes. He confesses his own sin. He's not looking for excuses or something to justify his wrong behavior, but he openly says, Lord, we've been wicked. We've been very wicked. And I think we as a human race are not good at doing that. We're bad at owning our stuff. We're bad at confessing, bad at repenting. And I think for many of us, if we just sorted that thing out, Lord, I'm sorry, yes, and I see this with my kids all the time. This morning in the car on the way to church, the one kid upset the other kid, and there was like a shouting match in the back seat, in the car, on the way to church, on a Sunday. Man. And they're like, no, but she started, no, but he shouted at me, and like they're just blaming and looking for excuses not to own their stuff. Anyway, I, I don't know if I managed to sort it out, but I think we're the same. We don't like being vulnerable. We don't like being wrong. But actually, God says, come to me, confess your sins, I'm faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means a change in thinking, a change in direction. I was going this way, doing this thing, and I metanoia, I repent, I change, and I go the other way. So repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, Lord. It's saying, I'm sorry, I own my stuff. Help me fix my stuff, and I'm going to change what I'm doing, change our direction. Number six, seven, sorry, thank you, seven. Nehemiah prays in line with God's promises and with his words. 
You know, you don't get a better prayer than praying the Word of God. Can't get a better prayer. He reminds himself, in this prayer he prays, he reminds himself, he reminds God of God's promises. He says, Lord, if we return to you, as your servant Moses said, if we return to you with our hearts and we obey your commands, then you're going to bring us back to the promised land. He's reminding himself because his own heart is downcast. His own heart is maybe sad. And friends, you and I, as we're going through life, we lose sight of the promises of God. We don't see around us what's happening, what we thought or hoped or expected to happen, and our hearts get downcast, as David would say in the Psalms. And so he reminds himself, this is what you've promised, Lord. He reminds God, this is what you've promised, Lord. And he prays the promises of God and the Word of God. Friends, what are the promises God's spoken over your life? Are you and I praying them? For me, I don't think I'm praying them enough, honestly. Two weeks ago, God reminded me of a scripture in Isaiah that He spoke over us 11 years ago. I can't think that I've prayed that scripture in 11 years. I'm shocked that I haven't. It's an amazing promise to God, for, from God for us, for His fruitfulness. And God reminded me, and I, I want to start praying those things God spoke over my life. We need to remind ourselves because our hearts get downcast and praying God's Word. You know that when you pray God's Word, you never run out of stuff to pray. You know that. You could flick to any part of the Bible and turn that into a prayer. Might be the worst example of human behavior, someone sinning terribly. Lord, protect me from temptation could be your prayer, right? But a few years ago, I remember doing a study on prayers of Paul. I just googled what are all of Paul's prayers and they came up and I copied them and pasted them into a document and I took one prayer a week and I read it over and over that week and I memorized portions of it and I meditated on it, I, let it, I stewed on it and I prayed that prayer for myself and for my friends and my family and for the church. It was the most invigorating prayer. It was a couple of months it took me to get through these prayers. But praying God's word, best thing you can pray. And that's what Nehemiah did. And then number eight, he leans on God's unchanging character. Listen to some of the phrases he prays. He says, the great and awesome God, the God of covenant to love his people. He speaks about God's faithfulness, the God who redeems with a mighty hand, the God who is great strength. This man's anchor is in who God is. Not in the circumstances. His anchor is in the nature of God, the character of God. Friends, the more that we know who God is, the greater our confidence and our peace as we approach Him in prayer. The as our revelation of Jesus increases, we see Him for who He is. Our prayers become more powerful and we can lean on Him. The Christian life is about living on Christ, not doing it ourselves. So we need to know the one that we're casting ourselves on. So we read the Bible to know Christ. And as we know Him, as our revelation enlargens and broadens, the character of God, we can depend on it. He's faithful. He's unchanging. He's good. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's loving. He's gracious. He forgives 
This is the God that we pray to. But we have to experience that. We have to know that. And you can see Nehemiah is grounded in who God is. You want to supercharge your prayers. Figure out who God is. What if the band could come up? I've on purpose kept this morning short because I want us to pray for some different things in line with what we've just learned about prayer from Nehemiah. We're going to pray for a couple of different things. Prayer, prayer is like the engine room of our lives. If we, if we dare to hope to follow Jesus and to fulfill the calling that He has, if we dare to hope that the kingdom would advance through us, that our lives would reflect Christ, then praying is something we have to be doing often and ongoingly. I don't think we can do anything significant for God without prayer. And you know what stuns me? Is that for some reason, some unfathomable reason, God has decided that He will not do stuff on earth unless His people pray. Now, He doesn't need us, right? And yet it's like He's waiting for us to join with Him. Certain things will not happen apart from prayer. I don't know why. If I was God, I wouldn't set it up like that. It's not a formula, but it seems like God says pray. Over and over again, Jesus teaches on prayer. Because He says, with heaven and earth, they can partner to see the kingdom coming. So as Terry said in the announcements, we pray as a church, 8.30, come and be here. If you need to re-kickstart your prayer life, it's much easier doing it with other people who are praying. Come here, 8.30. I'll make your coffee next Sunday at 8.30. So come and join us next week. We have a prayer ministry. Join that team. It's on a WhatsApp group. Let me give, you, give me your number. I'll add you on if you like to pray and hold up things. Can we stand? I'm going to... We'll have some pictures in a moment, some things to pray for. The band are just to help us as we're praying. But firstly, I want us to give thanks. You see the keyboard player, Mr. Ainsley Chetty. Ainsley and Nell had a baby three and a bit weeks ago. Baby's been in ICU until Friday he came home. Praise God. So let's pray. Those eight points, Lord, move my heart. Lord, help me 